Section 7 of Letters to a Friend by John Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Paul Fleischman. Letters from 1872. Yosemite Valley, February 13, 1872. Your latest letter is dated December 31st. I see that some of our letters are missing. I received the box and ate the berries and Liebig's extract long ago and told you all about it, but Mrs. Yelverton's book and magazine articles I have not yet seen. Perhaps they may come next mail. How did you send them? I sympathize with your face and your great sorrows, but you will bathe in the fountain of light, life, and love of our mountains and be healed. And here I wish to say that when you and Al and the doctor come, I wish to be completely free. Therefore, let me know that you will certainly come and win. I will gladly cut off a slice of my season's time, however thick, the thicker the better, and lay it aside for you. I am in the habit of asking so many to come, come, come to the mountain baptisms that there is danger of having others on my hands when you come, which must not be. I will mark off one or two or three months of bare, dutiless time for our blessed selves, or the few good and loyal ones that you may choose. Therefore, at the expense even of breaking a dozen of civilization's laws and fences, I want you to come, for the high Sierra, the months of July, August, and September are best. As for your Asiatic sayings, I would gladly creep into the Vale of Kashmir, or any other grove upon our blessed star. I feel my poverty in general knowledge, and will travel some day. You need not think that I feel Yosemite to be all in all, but more of this when you come. I'm going to send you with this a few facts and thoughts that I gathered concerning Twenty Hill Hollow, which I want to publish if you think you can mend them and make them into a lawful article fit for outsiders. Plant gold is fading from California faster than did her placer gold, and I wanted to save the memory of that which is laid upon twenty hills. Also, I will send you some thoughts that I happened to get for poor, persecuted, twice-damned coyote. If you think anybody will believe them, have them published. Last mail I sent you some manuscript about bears and storms, which you will believe if no one else will. An account of my preliminary rambles among the glacier beds was published in the Daily Tribune of New York, December 9th. Have you seen it? If you have, call old Mr. Stebbins' attention to it. He will read with pleasure. Where is the old friend? I have not heard from him for a long time. Remember me to the doctor and the boys and all my old friends. Yours, etc., John Muir. New Sentinel Hotel, Yosemite Valley, April 23, 1872. Yours of April 9th and 15th, containing Ned's canoe and colonization adventure, came tonight. I feel that you are coming, and I will not hear any words of preparatory consolation for the unsupposable case of your non-appearance. Come by way of Clark's and spend a whole day or two in the Sequoias, thence to Sentinel Dome and Glacier Point. From thence, swoop to our meadows and groves, direct by a trail, 
now in course of construction, which will be completed by the time the snow melts. This new trail will be best in scenery and safety of five which enter the valley. It leads from Glacier Point down the face of the mountain by an easy grade to a point back of Leidig's Hotel and has over half a dozen inspiration points. I hear that Mr. Paragoy intends building a hotel at Glacier Point. If he does, you should halt there for the night after leaving Clark's. If not, then stop at the present Paragoy's, five or six miles south of the valley at the Westfall Meadows, built since your visit. You might then easily ride from Clark's to the valley in a day, but a day among the silver firs and another about the glories of the valley rim and settings is a small request. The snow is deep this year, and the regular Mariposa Trail leading to Glacier Point, etc., will not be open before June. The Mariposa travel of May and perhaps a week or so of June will enter the valley from Clark's by a sort of sneaking trail along the river canyon below the snow, but you must not come that way. You may also enter the valley via Little Yosemite and Nevada and Vernal Falls by a trail constructed last season. Also by Indian Falls on the north side of the valley by a trail now nearly completed. This last is a noble entrance but perhaps not equal to the first. Whatever way you come, we will travel all those up and down, and bear in mind that you must go among the summits in July or August. Bring no friends that will not go to these fountains beyond, or are uncastoffable. Calm thinkers, like your doctor, who first led me with science, and Leconte, are the kinds of souls fit for the formation of human clouds adapted to this mountain sky. Nevertheless, I will rejoice beyond measure, though you come as a comet, tailed by a whole misty town. Ned is a brave fellow. God bless him unspeakably, and feed him with his own South American self. I shall be most happy to know your doggets, or anything that you call dear. Good night, and love to all. I have not seen any of my Tribune letters, though I have written five or six. Send copy if you can. J. Muir 1872. Beginning of Letter Missing Farewell. I'm glad you are to get your Ned again. The fever will soon cool out from his veins in the breadth of California. The valley is full of sun, but glorious Sierras are piled above the South Dome and Star King. I mean the bossy cumuli that are daily upheaved at this season, making a cloud period yet grander than the rock-sculpturing, Yosemite-making, forest-planting, glacial period. Yesterday we had our first midday shower. The pines waved gloriously at its approach. The woodpeckers beat about as if alarmed, but the hummingbird moths thought the cloud shadows belonged to evening and came down to eat among the mints. All the fire and rocks of Star King were bathily dripped before. 1872. Beginning of Letter Missing They will go on monoward for Tahoe. I mean to set some stakes in a dozen glaciers and gather some arithmetic for clothing my thoughts. I hope you will not allow old H. or his picture agent, Houseworth, 
to so gobble and be wool poor Agassiz that I will not see him. Remember me always to the doctor and the boys and to Mrs. Moore, and I am ever yours, John Muir. I will return to the valley in about a week if I don't get over deep in a crevasse. Later. Yours of Monday evening has just come. I am glad your boy is so soon to feel mother home and its blessings. I hope to meet Tory, although I will push iceward as before, but make it back in time. I will enjoy Agassiz and Tyndall even more. I'm sorry for poor Stoddard. Tell him to come. I'll see Mrs. H. perhaps this evening and deliver your message. Farewell. New Sentinel Hotel, Yosemite Valley, May 31, 1872. Yours announcing the Joaquin and the Doggetts and more is here. I care not when you come, so that you come calm and timeful. I will try to compel myself down to you in August, but these years and ages among snows and rocks have made me far more unfit for the usages of civilization than you appreciate. My nerves' strings shrink at the prospect, even at this distance. But if, by diving to that slimy town sea-bottom, I can touch Huxley and Tyndall and mount again with you to calm months in the Sierras, I will draw a long breath and splash into your fearful muds. I would rather have you in September and October than at any other time, but a few weeks of this white water would be very glorious. Merrill Moores, who was with me in Wisconsin and at your Madison home, will be here soon to spend a good big block of a while with me. Why can't you let Allie join him? For the last week, our valley has been a lake, and my shanty is in flood. But the walls about us are white this morning with snow, which has checked the free life of our torrents, and the meadows will soon be walkable again. The snow fell last night and this morning. The falls will sing loud and long this year, and the mountains are fat in thick snow that the sun will find hard to fry. Midnight. Oh, Mrs. Carr, that you could be here to mingle in this night moon glory. I am in the upper Yosemite Falls and can hardly calm to write. But from my thick baptism an hour ago, you have been so present that I must try to fix you a written thought. In the afternoon, I came up the mountain here with a blanket and a piece of bread to spend the night in prayer among the spouts of the fall. But now, what can I say more than wish again that you might expose your soul to the rays of this heaven? Silver from the moon illumines this glorious creation, which we term falls, and has laid a magnificent double prismatic bow at its base. The tissue of the falls is delicately filmed on the outside like the substance of spent clouds, and the stars shine dimly through it. In the solid shafted body of the falls is a vast number of passing caves, black and deep, with close white convolving spray for sills and shooting comet shoots above and down their sides like lime crystals in the cave. And every atom of the magnificent being, from the thin silvery crest that does not dim the stars, to the inner arrowy hardened shafts that strike onward like thunderbolts in sound and energy, 
All is life and spirit. Every bolt and spray feels the hand of God. Oh, the music that is blessing me now. The sun of last week has given the grandest notes of all the yearly anthem, and they echo in every fiber of me. I said that I was going to stop here until morning and pray a whole blessed night with the falls and the moon, but I am too wet and must go down. An hour or two ago, I went out somehow on a little seam that extends along the wall behind the falls. I suppose I was in a trance, but I can positively say that I was in the body, for it is sorely battered and wetted. As I was gazing past the thin edge of the fall and away through beneath the column to the brow of the rock, some heavy splashes of water struck me, driven hard against the wall. Suddenly I was darkened. Down came a section of the outside tissue composed of spent comets. I crouched low, holding my breath, and, anchored to some angular flakes of rocks, took my baptism with moderately good faith. When I dared to look up, after the swaying column admitted light, I pounced behind a piece of ice which was wedged tight in the wall, and I no longer feared being washed off and steady moonbeams slanting past the arching meteors gave me confidence to escape to this snug place where McChesney and I slept one night, where I had a fire to dry my socks. This rock shelf extending behind the falls is about 500 feet above the base of the fall on the perpendicular rock face. How little do we know of ourselves, of our profoundest attractions and repulsions, of our spiritual affinities. How interesting does man become considered in his relations to the spirit of this rock and water? How significant does every atom of our world become amid the influences of those beings unseen, spiritual, angelic mountaineers that so throng these pure mansions of crystal foam and purple granite? I cannot refrain from speaking to this little bush at my side, and to the spray drops that come to my paper, and to the individual sands of the slope I am sitting upon. Ruskin says that the idea of foulness is essentially connected with what he calls dead, unorganized matter. How cordially I disbelieve him tonight! And were he to dwell a while among the powers of these mountains, he would forget all dictionary differences between the clean and the unclean, and he would lose all memory and meaning of the diabolical, sin-begotten term, foulness. Well, I must go down. I am disregarding all of the doctor's physiology in sitting here in this universal moisture. Farewell to you and to all the beings about us. I shall have a glorious walk down the mountains in this thin white light, over the open brows grayed with selaginella, and through the thick black shadow caves in the live oaks, all stuck full of snowy lances of moonlight. New Sentinel Hotel, Yosemite Valley, July 6th, 1872. Yours of Tuesday evening, telling of our Doggetts and Ned and Merrill Moores, has come, and so has the lamp and book. I have not yet tried the lamp, but it is splendid in shape and shines grand as gold. The Lyle is just what I wanted. I think that your measure of the Doggetts is exactly right, as good as civilized people can be. 
They have grown to the top of town culture and have sent out some shoots half-gropingly into the spirit sky. I am very glad to know that Ned is growing strong. Perhaps we may see South America together yet. I hope to see you come to your own of Mountain Fountains soon. Perhaps Mrs. Hutchings may go with us. You live so fully in my own life that I cannot realize that I have not seen you here. A year or two of waiting seems nothing. Possibly I may be down on your coast this fall or next, for I want to see what relations the coast and coast mountains have to the Sierras. Also, I want to go north and south along the range, and then among the basins and ranges eastward. My subject is expanding at a most unfollowable pace. I could write something with data already harvested, but I am not satisfied. I have just returned from Hetch Hetchy with Mrs. Moore. Of course, we had a glory and a fun, the two articles in about parallel columns of equal size. Meadows grassed and lilies head high, spangled river reaches and currentless pools, cascades countless and unpaintable in form and whiteness, groves that heaven all the valley. You were with us in all our joy, and you will come again. I am a little weary and half-inclined to truantism for mobs, however blessed, in some unfindable grove. I start in a few minutes for Cloud's Rest with Mr. and Mrs. Moore. I like Mrs. Moore and Mr. First Rate. My love to the doctor and all the boys. I hope for Merrill daily. I am ever your friend, J. Muir. New Sentinel Hotel, Yosemite, July 14th. 1872. Yours announcing Dr. Gray is received. I have great longing for Gray, whom I feel to be a great, progressive, unlimited man, like Darwin and Huxley and Tyndall. I will be most glad to meet him. You are unweariable in your kindness to me, and you helm my fate more than all the world beside. I am approaching a kind of fruiting time in this mountain work, and I want very much to see you. All say right, but I don't know how or what, and besides, I want to see north and south, and the Midland Basins, and the sea coast, and all the lake basins, and the canyons, also the Alps of every country, and the continental glaciers of Greenland, before I write the book we have been speaking of. And all this will require a dozen years, or twenty, and money. The question is, what will I write now, etc.? I have learned the alphabet of ice and mountain structure here, and I think I can read fast in other countries. I would let others write what I have read here, but that they make so damnable a hash of it and ruin so glorious a unit. I miss the Moors because they were so cordial and kind to me. Mrs. Moore believes in ice and can preach it too. I wish you could bring Whitney and her together and tell me the fight. Mrs. M. made the most sensible visit to our mountains of all the comers I have known. Mr. Moore is a man who thinks, and he took to this mountain structure like a pointer to partridges. I am glad your Ned is growing strong. Then we will yet meet this summer in Yosemite places. Talk to Mrs. Moore about Hetchetchi, etc. She knows it all from Hog Ranch to highest sea wave cascades and higher yet higher. I ought not to fun away letter space in speaking to you. 
I am weary and impractical and fit for nothing serious until I am tuned and toned by a few weeks of calm. Farewell. I will see you, and we will plan work and ease and days of holy mountain rest. Remember me to Ned and all the boys and to the doctor who ought to come hither with you. Ever your friend, John Muir. Yosemite Valley, July 27th, 1872. I want to see you. I want to speak about my studies, which are growing broader and broader and spreading away to all countries without any clear horizon anywhere. I will go over all this Yosemite region this fall and write it up in some form or other. Will you be here to accompany me in my easier excursions? I have a good horse for you and will get a tub and plenty of meal and tea, and you will keep house in very old style and you can bring whom you please. I've had a very noble time with Gray, who, though brooded and breaded by Hutchings, gave most of his time to me. I was sorry that his time was so meanly measured and bounded. He is a most cordial lover of purity and truth, but the angular factiness of his pursuits has kept him at too cold a distance from the spirit world. I know that Mrs. Moore has given you ice in abundance, though even Yosemite glaciers might melt in the warmth of her laughter and sunshine. She handles glacier periods like an agassiz, and has discovered a hetch-hetchy period that is her own. Don't you believe all she tells you about the walk and the dark and the dust of Indian Canyon? I want to get Doggett's address. I will begin my long mountain excursion soon, for the snow is mostly gone from the high meadows. I have been guiding a few parties and will take a few more if they are of the right kind, but I want my mind kept free and sensitive to all influences accepting human business. I need to talk with you more than ever before. Mrs. Hutchings is always kind to me, and the clearness of her views on all spiritual things is very extraordinary. She appreciates your friendship very keenly, and I am glad to think you will soon know each other better. Her little Casey, Gertrude, is as pure a piece of sunbeam as ever was condensed to human form hoping that Ned will be able to come here to the mountain waters for perfect healing and that you will also find leisure for the satisfying of your thirst for beauty. I remain ever your friend, John Muir. My love to Doctor and all the boys. Yosemite Valley, August 5th, 1872. Your letter telling me to catch my best glacier birds and come to you and the coast mountains only makes me the more anxious to see you. And if you cannot come up, I will have to come down, if only for a talk. My birds are flying everywhere, into all mountains and plains, of all climes and times, and some are ducks in the sea, and I scarce know what to do about it. I must see the coast ranges and the coast, but I was thinking that a month or so might answer for the present, and then, instead of spending the winter in town, I would hide in Yosemite and write. Or I thought I would pack up some meal and dried plums to some deep, wind-sheltered canyon back among the glaciers of the summits and write there and be ready to catch any whisper of ice and snow in these highest storms. You anticipate all the bends and falls and rapids and cascades of my mountain life, and I know that you say truly about my companions being those who live with me in the same sky, 
whether in reach of hand or only of spiritual contact, which is the most real contact of all. I am learning to live close to the lives of my friends without ever seeing them. No miles of any measurement can separate your soul from mine. Part of Letter Missing The valley was vouchsafed a single drop. After the splendid blessing, the afternoon was veiled in calm clouds, and one of intensely beautiful pattern and gorgeously irised was stationed over Eagle Rock at the sunset. Farewell, I'll see you with my common eyes and touch you with these very writing fingers ere long. Remember me cordially to Mrs. Moore and Mr. and all your family, and I am, as ever, your friend, John Muir. Yosemite Valley, September 13, 1872. Yours of August 23rd is received. LeConte writes me that Agassiz will not come to the valley. I just got down last evening from a 15-day ramble in the basins of Illilouette and Pohono and start again in an hour for the summit glaciers to see some canyons and to examine the stakes I planted in the ice a month ago. I would like to come down to see Agassiz but now is my harvest of rocks, and I cannot spare the time. I shall work in the outer mountains incessantly until the coming of the snow. Rest of letter missing. Yosemite Valley, October 8, 1872. Here we are again, and here is your letter of September 24th. I got down last evening, and boo, was I not weary after pushing through the rough upper half of the great Tuolumne Canyon, I have climbed more than 24,000 feet in these 10 days, three times to the top of the glacierette of Mount Hoffman and once to Mounts Lyle and McClure. I have bagged a quantity of Tuolumne rocks sufficient to build a dozen Yosemites. Stripes of cascades longer than ever, lacy or smooth and white as pressed snow, a glacier basin with 10 glassy lakes set all near together like eggs in a nest, then El Capitan and a couple of Tissiacs, canyons glorious with yellows and reds of mountain maple and aspen and honeysuckle and ash and new indescribable music, immeasurable from strange waters and winds, and glaciers too, flowing and grinding, alive as any on earth. Shall I pull you out some? Here is a clean, white-skinned glacier from the back of McClure, with glassy emerald flesh and singing crystal blood, all bright and pure as the sky, yet handling mud and stone like a navvy, building moraines like a plodding Irishman. Here is a cascade two hundred feet wide, half a mile long, glancing this way and that, filled with bounce and dance and joyous hurrah, yet earnest as tempest, and singing like angels, loose on a frolic from heaven. And here are more cascades, and more, broad and flat like clouds, and fringed like flowing hair, with occasional falls erect as pines, and lakes like glowing eyes, and here are visions and dreams, and a splendid set of ghosts, too many for ink and narrow paper. I have not heard anything concerning Leconte's glacier lecture, but he seems to have drawn all he knows of Sierra glaciers and new theories concerning them so directly from here that I cannot think that he will claim discovery, etc., if he does, I will not be made poorer. Professor Neeland, Secretary, Boston Institute of Technology, gathered some letters I sent to Runkle, and that Tribune letter, 
and hash them into a compost called a paper for the Boston Historical Society, and gave me credit for all of the smaller sayings and doings, and stole the broadest truth to himself. I have the proof sheets of the paper, and will show them to you sometime. But all of such meanness can work no permanent evil to anyone except the dealer. As for the living glaciers of the Sierras, here is what I have learned concerning them. You will have the first chance to steal, for I have just concluded my experiments on them for the season, and have not yet cast them at any of the great professors or presidents. One of the yellow days of last October, when I was among the mountains of the Merced group, following the footprints of the ancient glaciers that once flowed grandly from their ample fountains, reading what I could of their history as written in moraines and canyons and lakes and carved rocks, I came upon a small stream that was carrying mud I had not before seen. In a calm place where the stream widened, I collected some of this mud and observed that it was entirely mineral in composition and fine as flour, like the mud from a fine grit grindstone. Before I had time to reason, I said, Glacier mud, mountain meal. Then I observed that this muddy stream issued from a bank of fresh quarried stones and dirt that was sixty or seventy feet in height. This I at once took to be a moraine. In climbing to the top of it, I was struck with the steepness of its slope and with its raw, unsettled, plantless, newborn appearance. The slightest touch started blocks of red and black slate, followed by a rattling train of smaller stones and sand and a cloud of the dry dust of mud, the whole moraine being as free from lichens and weather stains as if dug from the mountain that very day. When I had scrambled to the top of the moraine, I saw what seemed a huge snowbank, four or five hundred yards in length, by half a mile in width. Embedded in its stained and furrowed surface were stones and dirt like that of which the moraine was built. Dirt-stained lines curved across the snowbank from side to side, and when I observed that these curved lines coincided with the curved moraine, and that the stones and dirt were most abundant near the bottom of the bank, I shouted, A living glacier! These bent dirt lines show that the ice is flowing in its different parts with unequal velocity, and these embedded stones are journeying down to be built into the moraine and they gradually become more abundant as they approach the moraine, because there the motion is slower. On traversing my newfound glacier, I came to a crevasse, down a wide and jagged portion of which I succeeded in making my way, and discovered that my so-called snowbank was clear green ice, and, comparing the form of the basin which it occupied with similar adjacent basins that were empty, I was led to the opinion that this glacier was several hundred feet in depth. Then I went to the snowbanks of Mounts Lyle and McClure, and believed that they also were true glaciers, and that a dozen other snowbanks seen from the summit of Mount Lyle, crouching in shadow, were glaciers, living as any in the world, and busily engaged in completing that vast work of mountain-making, accomplished by their giant relatives now dead, which, united and continuous, covered all the range from summit to sea like a sky. I'm going to take your painter boys with me into one of my best sanctums on your recommendation for holiness. Emerson has sent me a profound little book styled 
The Growth of the Mind, by Reed. Do you know it? It is full of the fountain truth. I'm glad your boys are safely back. Perhaps Ned and I may try that Andy's field together. I would write to Mrs. Moore, but will wait until she is better. Tell her the Cascades and Mountains of Upper Hetch Hetchy. Portion of letter missing. I hope I may see you a few days soon. I had a pretty letter from old Dr. Tory, and from Gray I have heard three or four times. I am ever cordially. Yosemite, October 14th, 1872. I cannot hear from you. There are some souls, perhaps, that are never tired, that ever go steadily glad, always tuneful and songful like mountain water. Not so weary, hungry me. The second time I come from the rocks for fresh supplies of the two breads, but I find but one. I cannot hear from you. My last weeks were spent among the canyons of the Hoffman Range and the Cathedral Peak Group, east of Lake Tenaya, all gloriously rich in the written truths which I am seeking. I will now go to the wide, ragged tributaries of Illilouette and De Pohono, after which I will mope about among the rim canyons and rock forms of the valley, as the weather permits. Perhaps I have not yet answered all of your last long pages. Here is a quotation from Tyndall concerning the nature and origin of his intense mountain enjoyments. He reaches far and near for a theory of his delight in the mountains, going among the accidents of his own boyhood and those of his remotest fathers, but surely this must be all wrong. And instead of groping away backwards among the various grades of grandfathers, he should explore the most primary properties of man. Perhaps we owe the pleasurable emotions which fine landscape makes in us to a cause as radical as that which makes a magnet pulse to the two poles. I think that one of the properties of that compound which we call man is that when exposed to the rays of mountain beauty, it glows with joy. I don't know who of all my ancestry are to blame, but my attractions and repulsions are badly balanced tonight, and I will not try to say any more, excepting farewell and love to you all. John Muir 1872 or 1873 Beginning of Letter Missing Although I was myself fully satisfied concerning the real nature of these ice masses, I found that my friends regarded my deductions and statements with distrust. Therefore, I determined to collect proofs of the common measured arithmetical kind. On the 21st of August last, I planted five stakes in the glacier of Mount McClure, which is situated east of Yosemite Valley, near the summit of the range. Four of these stakes were extended across the middle of the glacier. The first stake was planted about 25 yards from the east bank of the glacier, the second 94 yards, the third 152, and the fourth 223 yards. The positions of these stakes were determined by sighting across from bank to bank past a plumb line made of a stone and a black horsehair. On observing my stakes on the 6th of October, or in 46 days after being planted, I found that stake number one had been carried downstream 11 inches, number two 18 inches, 
Number three, 34. Number four, 47 inches. As stake number four was near the middle of the glacier, perhaps it was not far from the point of maximum velocity, 47 inches in 46 days, or one inch per day. Stake number five was planted about midway between the head of the glacier and stake number... number missing. Its motion I found to be, in 46 days, 40 inches. Thus, these ice masses are seen to possess the true glacial motion. Their surfaces are striped with bent dirt bands. Their surfaces are bulged and undulated by inequalities in the bottom of their basins, causing an upward and downward swedging, corresponding to the horizontal swedging, as indicated by the curved dirt bands. The McClure Glacier is about half a mile in length and about the same in width at the broadest place. It is crevassed on the southeast corner. The crevasse runs about southwest and northeast and is several hundred yards in length. Its width is nowhere more than one foot. The Mount Lyle Glacier, separated from that of McClure by a narrow crest, is about a mile in width by a mile in length. I have planted stakes in the glacier of Red Mountains also, but have not yet observed them. No date. Beginning of letter missing. In going up any of the principal Yosemite streams, lakes in all stages of decay are found in great abundance, regularly becoming younger until we reach the almost countless gems of the summits, with scarce an inch of carex upon their shallow, sandy borders and with their bottoms still bright, with a polish of ice. Upon the Nevada and its branches, there are not fewer than a hundred of these glacial lakes, from a mile to a hundred yards in diameter, with countless glistening pondlets not much larger than moons. All of the grand fir forests about the valley are planted upon moraines, and from any of the mountaintops, the shape and extent of the neighboring moraines may always be surely determined by the firs growing upon them. Some pines will grow upon shallow sand and crumbling granite, but those luxuriant forests of the silver firs are always upon a generous bed of glacial drift. I discovered a moraine with smooth pebbles upon a shoulder of the south dome and upon every part of the Yosemite upper and lower walls. I am surprised to find that water has had so little to do with mountain structure here. Whitney says that there is no proof that glaciers ever flowed in this valley, yet its walls have not been eroded to the depth of an inch since the ice left it, and glacial action is glaringly apparent many miles below the valley. The bottom portion of the foregoing section, with perpendicular sides, is here about two feet in depth and was cut by the water. The Nevada here never was more than four or five feet deep, and all of the bank records of all the upper streams say the same thing, of the absence of great floods. The entire region above Yosemite, and as far down as the bottoms of Yosemite, has scarcely been touched by any other inundation than that of ice. Perhaps all of the past glacial inundation of every kind would not average an inch in depth for the whole region. Yosemite and Hetch Hetchy are lake basins, filled with sand and the matter of moraines washed from the upper canyons. 
the Yosemite ice, in escaping from the Yosemite basin, was compelled to flow upward a considerable height on both sides of the bottom walls of the valley. The canyon below the valley is very crooked and very narrow, and the Yosemite glacier flowed across all of its crooks and high above its walls without paying any compliance to it. Thus, drawing here. The light lines show the direction of the ice current. End of section 7